0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly
1: medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: I think the one area that we could possibly claim to be the best in the world at is actually immigration. It's a very fraught area in Australia, but when you look at the fact that a third of Australians were born overseas. Half have got at least one overseas-born parent. When you look, when you compare that with other countries around the world, Australia is absolutely one of the shining lights when it comes to immigration.
2: Hello, it's Catherine Murphy, and welcome to the show. You're on Australian Politics Live. Now, a little bit of a change of pace this week. I'm very conscious on the show we do lots of heavy topics and we do lots of heavy topics because heavy topics need doing. But periodically we do need to look on the bright side. So I'm speaking to a guy this week called Andrew Weir. He's going to explain to you in a minute how we're going to look on the bright side and why we're doing that and who he is and what his project is about. Listen up. So, Andrew, thanks very much for coming on the show.
1: Real pleasure to be here. Thank you.
2: So, let's start by telling the listeners who you are.
1: Yeah. So, my name's Andrew Weir. I'm a. I work broadly in public policy. I'm a public servant with the Victorian government, but I've over twenty years. I've had a range of public policy jobs, and uh, I guess one of my passions really is exploring. A range of public policy from around the world to to really understand what works and what we can learn from that and to take inspiration to drive reform in Australia.
2: Well this is a, I was keen to have a conversation I'll disclose up front to the listeners with Andrew because Regular listeners will know that we spend quite a lot of time on this podcast grinding over uh, policy issues because that's what I'm into, um, but also things that are very hard to fix and also mm. get sort of loaded down with toxic politics and other things. I was very taken with having a conversation with Andrew because he has a book coming out, which he will doubtless inform you about in a sec, but uh, looks at problems from the other other perspective. So Andrew takes up the story.
1: Yeah, well, I think We've all been into bookshops and seen the current affairs section and the politics section, and it's full of books of the rise of inequality, the rise of racism, the you know, decline of humanity, and and it's extraordinarily depressing. And I guess from the perspective of my policy background, I knew that there's actually some really good news stories around the world of countries doing a great job. And I really wanted to ensure those stories were told. So the book that I've been researching for the last, last year or so is really looking around the world and Rather than coming at it from an ideological perspective, it's really coming at it from a perspective of asking, firstly, which countries are achieving the best results, the you know, best outcomes by looking at some of that high-level data, and then drilling down and understanding what they're doing that's actually enabling them to achieve those results talking to their experts talking to everyday practitioners involved in delivering reforms in those countries to really try and distill some of the lessons
2: well let's stick with sunnyside up so yeah. give us a couple of examples of uh, countries around the world that are solving various wicked problems or, or at least giving it a crack to yeah. solve wicked problems let's let's sure. think about a couple
1: well let's let's look firstly to climate change one of the biggest problems that's bedeviled Australia I think in formulating a uh, an adequate response, you can look to Denmark, for example, which is leading the world. While Australia's really had since 1990 effectively zero decline in per capita carbon emissions. We were 16 tons in 1990. We're roughly 16 tons per capita now. Yep. Over the same period, Denmark has halved its per capita carbon emissions at the same time as its economy has grown quite substantially. So how yeah.
2: tell tell tell. Yeah. The, uh, let's unpack it how yeah. have they done it
1: yeah so effectively denmark hasn't waited for an emissions trading regime or big economic sort of uh, frameworks to drive its reform although it's operating under the european union's mm. kind of, you know emissions trading framework it's invested heavily in renewables through particularly through wind energy and what's interesting about that is that it's actually the centre right centre right coalition in Denmark, uh, the political cousins of the current government in Australia, that's that actually recently committed to a target of 100% renewables for electricity by 2030. And one of the great things about Denmark that they've achieved is political consensus leading to a climate of investment certainty. When companies know what the policy framework is in the future, they're far more likely to invest. And so Denmark has really seen substantial investments in, in wind and I think the other thing that's really driven reform in Denmark is coming at the problem not from not always from the perspective of the crisis of climate change, but also thinking about it through local problems that are real tangible issues for mm-hmm. the uh, for the community, whether it be through local economic development on the island of Samso, which I talked to, which is where they leverage investment in renewable energy to drive local economic development, mm-hmm. or even thinking about... Copenhagen, improving livability, making Copenhagen a great city to live in through improved public transport and walkability and cycling has enabled Copenhagen to reduce its per capita emissions down to about two and a half tonnes per person. Mm. And and they're aiming to be at zero relatively soon.
2: So a couple of things, just because I don't, apart from consuming Uh, lots of Scandi Noir and (laughs) having a fantasy that I might go on a Scandinavian holiday at some point. I don't know much about Denmark's uh, sort of economic underpinnings. For Mm. example, did Denmark have a big coal industry? In terms Mm. of, you've said like the key to actually fixing this is one, Mm. to sort of refract it through a materialist lens Mm. rather than talking about some religious, -religious quasi-religious experience of the planet's about to die or isn't going to die, but how do we transform our economy for the next thing and how do we deliver practical outcomes, right? And I can completely understand how that's more successful than the the cul-de-sac we're in. But- what about special interests, though? Because yeah. if we're transforming a energy setup to 100% renewables by 2030, what have the losers said, and mm. how have they not been impactful in slowing progress?
1: Yeah, well, Denmark does have a coal fired power industry, um, and it's committed to shutting down its last remaining coal fired power stations by 2030, and and for the most part. There's been a large degree of consensus in Denmark. It dates back right back to the oil crisis in the 1970s, mm-hmm. where, where the need for Denmark to be relatively independent, independent. from yeah. a, from an like, from an energy supply point of view, mm-hmm. so that goes back a long way. But, but I think. Big business has been part of, almost co-opted into finding some of the solutions uh, to this challenge. And for example, one of the measures they've got is an energy efficiency program that sees the big electricity companies incentivized to introduce energy efficiency into the system so they effectively get paid more to supply less energy. Mm-hmm. And so they're on board with that agenda as well. Yeah,
2: I'm just I'm intrigued that when you say it's sort of, it's accepted because, you know, culturally it's sort of for for people in Denmark being energy independent is more important on a sort of sliding scale, although this is a kind of superficial whoosh, whoosh way to look at it, but that, you know, being energy independent is more important than the transitional costs. I just – I'm labouring this point because in Mm. Australia – you know, people, and but, we're not, we're, you and I are not going to get into politics, but people no. like Matt Canavan, for example, the resources minister, holds up coal jobs as some sort of divine national right. And that then makes it much more difficult to sort of present these arguments to workers as, as, well, this is a transition. You won't work as a coal worker. You'll work as something else. But so, I think
1: Denmark's also seen the emergence of a whole a whole bunch of new industry sectors built around clean energy. You might be familiar with the company Vestas, the, yep, the wind, turbine, yep. wind turbine turbine manufacturer. And, and Denmark's really emerged as a global leader in some of this space by having that first mover advantage. Yep. There was a report that was released by the OECD not too long ago, and it showed that transitioning to low carbon energy production would actually lead to an increase in GDP. Mm. And that's because it involves an increase in investment, an increase in education and greater productivity flowing Mm. from that as a result. And the economy as a whole benefits. And I think Australia probably has something to learn from that.
2: And so because people see it's tangible... That the transition is occurring, that there's more benefits than costs associated with it, and because it hasn't sort of been snagged in some partisan shit fight horror show, I think that counts for a lot. It counts for a lot, and
1: and trust in government in Denmark is amongst the highest in the world, and I think having a relationship of trust and not highly partisan political debates uh, enables a lot of this this type of conversation to occur more smoothly than it perhaps otherwise well, and, would.
2: And sort of government by coalition too, rather than than major parties being so dominant, yeah. which which I guess incentivizes the, the fight show kind yeah. of dynamic of politics. To an extent. That, every, yeah.
1: But every energy agreement that Denmark's had in recent years has been completely bipartisan, with the opposition signing up to it along with the government. And that's been deliberate and explicit, regardless of who's in power, because the Danes understand that... Providing certainty in terms of an energy policy framework is what enables businesses to survive and thrive Mm. in that policy context. Mm. And uncertainty is is the one thing that will undermine business confidence.
2: Well, we see it here. But anyway, um, (laughs) yes. So sorry, I have flogged that one because, of course, I'm obsessed (laughs) with climate change, as everyone knows. So give us another example.
1: Look, I think another example is education and and this book that I've researched is not all about Scandinavia and the Nordics, although it would have quite easily been, have been, could <laughs> quite easily have been about, yes. about yeah, that. Yeah. But, Pick
2: someone who is isn't a Nordic country yeah. who's doing something. But I think it's yeah. interesting.
1: There are really two groups of countries that are really excelling. One is the Northern Europeans and Nordics and the other one is the East Asian economies. And I think in particularly in the areas of education and health, East Asian economies such as Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, they're really getting streaks ahead. I've focused in in the book on Singapore, where, Mm -hmm. for example, Singapore is achieving the best results in the world in terms of educational outcomes. Mm -hmm. The average 15-year-old in Singapore is achieving a math standard that's two years ahead of the average Australian student.
2: So how? How's this happening?
1: It's interesting. A couple of things to learn from Singapore, I think, is Essentially, Singapore is almost entirely a government-run system. No one, the only there's about one percent of schools in Singapore that are private schools, and that's for expats. But all Singaporean students go to government-run schools, which enables a a system-based approach to Mm -hmm. education Mm -hmm. to happen. And I think one of the other big themes that comes through in in Singapore is really investment in teachers and valuing teaching. Singaporean teachers are recruited from the uh, top one-third of graduates in their cohort. They're paid as civil servants from the moment they enter teacher uh, right. education. Mm-hmm. They are paid relatively highly compared to a lot of other countries in teaching, and they're really incentivized all the way through with learning and development. For example- it's quite normal if you're a teacher in Singapore to be travelling overseas every year to go and learn from other jurisdictions about teaching practice and and teaching really is a prestigious profession, profession. in Singapore. Yeah, right. And
2: and So as well as those systemic things and sorry if I cut you off okay. you won't like finish finish on the systemic front in a sec but I just want to prompt you on something. Now education I'm by no means expert in but I think I've seen suggestions by people who are much much more au fait in this area that family background is a really important determinant to educational attainment yeah. right i'm not i'm not diminishing systemic factors yeah. and that's the things that we should look at right to see what's mm. successful and yeah. what isn't but is family is culture, is family, expectations, is all of that part of the success as it's well? A,
1: it's a big part of it and and sort of East Asian culture values education highly. One study, for example, has shown that students of East Asian background in Australia, achieve results that are equal to equal to that achieved, or mm. even better than East Asian students in East Asia. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so there is there's definitely that factor. But that said, I think even in Singapore, if you look at the most disadvantaged cohorts in Singapore, are achieving results equal to or better than the average Australian student. Mm. So uh, it's uh, the, the the question of distributional effects and and and. And inequality is is really quite irrelevant and it's a good question, but I think overall the standards in Singapore are extraordinarily high. Mm. Partly that comes about through parents in Singapore rather than spending their discretionary dollars on expensive private schools with fifty meter swimming pools and,
0: yeah, and, sure. and, and all and those and amazing facilities. Yeah. They're
1: spending their discretionary dollar on on tutoring for their students and after hours, which can create a high pressure environment and and standards are high, the expectations are high, it can be a bit of spit uh, stressful for the Singaporean mm. fi- Singaporean students. But in one sense that's not all you know, there are. It's not too dissimilar to what we see with entrance exams for selective entry high schools in oh. Australia, or or scholarships. Or, no, no, or no, no that exactly. Sort of if well. if you
2: buy, if you're buying into that educational experience, mm. it, it is stressful. And mm. you know, parents I know that have got kids in private schools. You know, all that. External tutoring, you know, tutoring for exam for, for success in exams. Tutoring, mm. you know, that like it's sort of layers on layers on layers. It seems confounding to me mm. because it's not my own experience of education or my kids, but it yeah. certainly exists here.
1: But I think for the, the lessons for Australia are really profound. I think in that education and the the human capital that comes with education is one of the the key determinants in driving economic prosperity mm. over Absolutely. the medium to long term, mm. and countries like Australia are getting. Absolutely slaughtered by the by the East Asian economies. We've already seen um, Singapore's GDP per capita is higher than Australia's, mm-hmm. uh, and I think. Uh, those sort of factors, we'll will see some profound changes in the relative strengths of various countries over the coming years. I suspect, and Australia really does need to lift its game in, well, in other areas. Well,
2: this is very interesting. So, how I want to talk to you before we wrap up about things Australia might be doing well, despite you know the chief Doomsayer at the, at the Guardian here yeah. con- constantly pointing out what we're not doing well. But on that example on, edu- on education. How how does Australia approach lifting its performance? Because we seem to have had a debate for the best part of a decade, well, probably longer here, about mm. funding, about, you know, the sort of adequacy of teacher training, all of these things. But yet it all, at least to me, seems quite... Bogged down. So, how do you turn yeah, that
1: around? <laughs> I'm not, I, I don't profess I've got all the answers on what Australia needs to do in that area. But I think there's some lessons at a macro level sure. for Australia. It's it's in it's invest in teachers. It's not worry about spending money on the things that aren't directly contributing to economic outcomes. It's or to educational outcomes, mm-hmm. I should say. It is look to those best and brightest jurisdictions from international from an international point of view, and we need to be supporting Australian teachers to. With their own learning and development, and their own professional development, there's a lot to be learnt from around the world. Um, mm. Singaporean stu- Singaporean teachers are on the, on, a, on a plane every year off to Finland or, you know, or, or wherever they go to to learn to learn about what's what's working. But your question about what Australia is mm. doing well and and what it could do better at, and I think mm. Australia is doing quite well at some things. I mean, in education, it's about middle of the pack when it comes to education. But but in other areas, for example, in in health, we're doing quite well. I think we're about about fifth in the world when it comes to life expectancy, which is which is quite quite good, mm. from the economic point of view, we're about mid pack in the OECD when it comes to overall economic outcomes, democracy and corruption, we're pretty much up the top of the league as well, although not, not quite as good as some of the Scandinavian countries and, and New Zealand, et cetera. But I think the one area that we could possibly claim to be the best in the world at, and I think you had Tim Watts on your podcast mm. a, a little while ago, is yeah. is actually immigration. Mm-hmm. It's a very fraught area in Australia, but when you look at the fact that a third of Australians were born overseas, half have got at least one overseas-born parent, students of immigrant parents do better than students of native-born parents, mm. which is one of the only, we're one of the only countries in the world to succeed with that. We've had a huge migration program, and yet the majority of Australians are still very, very supportive of, of multiculturalism and immigration. When you look, When you compare that with other countries around the world, Australia is... Absolutely, that one of the shining lights when mm. it comes to in, immigration.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's sort of funny, isn't it? Because we we're a, we're a country where our sort of societal forms, in terms of you know uh, federation and what occurred afterwards, was sort of built on these racist tenets. Like, mm. let's be obvious, mm. or let's, yeah, let's let's be honest, right? It was it was systemic racism was kind of at the heart of the Australian settlement. Mm. Um, yet, <laughs> despite this, it's you know we, we have very limited violence in Australia between different yeah. ethnic groups. Uh, as you say, yeah. there is this sort of you know kind of success, <laughs> yeah. despite all kinds of threats to that success, from you know silly partisan politics to you know the, just the genuine difficulty of services keeping up with rates of population growth, all of those sorts of pressures. Yeah, so- we're not
1: going to talk about it. We don't really talk about it. We don't claim it as a success. Yeah, we're not no, going to. Why not? We're, well, I think we... What's that about? A prof- I think at one level, on on regardless of which side of the political spectrum we're on, it makes us uncomfortable to some extent.
2: Why? Because it's sort of it, it's out of step with this sort of other kind of mythical notion we've got of ourselves, or what do you think it's about? Well,
1: certainly we've had, those, as you say, right back to our origin stories. We've had a, a difficult challenges with race. We, uh, we've had a very fraught story around our humanitarian program, yeah. Um, yeah. which causes a whole bunch of bunch of grief. Yeah, it's not not without issues. And I should say, none of the countries that I've studied, it, although they might have some of the best results in the world, all of them have got issues and none of them are perfect and I think that's okay we should be talking about that but having issues shouldn't stop us claiming our successes mm. as well and mm. I think when you look when you stand back and look at it from a global point of view Australia is actually doing quite well on that front mm. and we and we should, we should be proud of that. Yes,
2: we it. should own it. Let's own it. We just <laughs> did own it. It's good. What are we worst at, do you think? If you, it might yeah. be a bit of a pig in a poke, but if you had to pick, what are we worst at? Well, I think at? there's
1: a couple that stand out. Clearly, uh, carbon emissions is not good. We've not made any progress in 25 years, and I think that's uh, real. doesn't reflect well on us and mm-hmm. our progress as a nation. We don't do well when it comes to all of the inequality measures, whether that be uh, income inequality, gender inequality or poverty, we are down the bottom. We're, not, we're not, by no means the worst on those measures. The USA and Mexico do far mm. worse, but we're certainly are in the bottom half when it comes to those measures. Is that uh, right?
2: Because we sort of yeah. do, I know obviously there's been increasing debate in the um, last five, well, post global financial crisis all around the world and in Australia about mm. inequality and whether we're good, good, bad or indifferent on mm. that stuff. You d- I do, I do still think tend to think of Australia as being sort of so much better than America, so we, much better we are. than other places. We that are. Is, that's not a fantasy of mine, is it? Or no, what? we're certainly
1: certainly much better than the USA and, and other countries, particularly Mexico, USA in particular. But when you look at the OECD cohort of developed countries, the sort of cohort of countries Australia should be comparing itself with, where we're not doing as well as, as certainly the top half.
2: Mm. 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 And
1: mm. We're, we're definitely in the bottom half. And I think we, if we were to ask ourselves where we need to improve, I'd say it's in, in those metrics. It's uh, carbon emissions and it's those various inequality measures.
2: Mm, well, can I get an amen in here? Anyway, <laughs> no, sorry, <laughs> enough, for you, Paul. Thank you. Um, but there's
1: enough to learn from other countries about how to do it. No, we, no. Well, we, that's
2: exactly mm, sunny side up. Yeah, We can look to successful turnarounds elsewhere yeah. on all of these things yeah. if we're prepared to do that.
1: If other countries can do it, there's absolutely no reason we can't too. It just requires the right degree of determination and the right degree of focus from leadership in Australia. And I think we know how to do it. The, the Other countries show us the way, and if they can do it, I see absolutely no reason why we can't too.
0: Okay.
2: Well, that's a good positive note to end on, Andrew. Remind the listeners. So this book's coming out early yeah. next year, I think, and what's it called?
1: Yeah, the book's called Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems, <laughs> and We Can Too. <laughs> It'll be released in uh, March next year. Okay. So keep an eye out for yeah, it. Yeah,
2: keep your eyes out for it. It'll be definitely worth a read. Thanks so much for Great. your time.
1: Thanks for your time. Real pleasure.
2: Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it as always. Thank you to Miles Martignoni and to Hannah Izard for production. You know the drill: subscribe, share, all of that business. Tell your friends about it. Don't forget to our fabulous new podcast produced by Guardian Australia called The Full Story. It has been launched this week, and it's pretty easy to track down via your favourite podcast app. Parliament's still sitting next week. We've got Senate estimates. We'll be back there.